Good morning. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Now, this is a good question, isn't it? It could speak to your purpose. What are you doing here in a place like Atlanta? What are you doing here at your job? And a family like yours. What are you doing here this morning? Gathered here in this church. What are you doing here? I've asked myself this question quite often in life. (laughs) I spent uh, in my 20s three glorious years living in Berlin. And I am a person that loves Europe. And uh, I still, even after all those years, wake up in my bed some mornings and ask myself, what am I doing here? (laughs) Why do I live in America, you know? My people came from there. I could just go back to where my people came from. I had a good life there. What am I doing here? As I got in my car this week, looked at the temperature gauge, 106, I asked myself, what am I doing here? (laughs) Flipped to my weather app saw that it was 71 degrees in Los Angeles. What am I doing here? It's a question we should be asking ourselves. And I woke up this morning in Atlanta knowing exactly what I'm doing here. Because I know why I'm here. I know I'm called to be here. I know I have a purpose here. And that's exactly why I am here. What are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? God wants to know. Who told you to go hide in a cave in Sinai? If you don't know Elijah's story, let's just take a moment to review it, because it's actually a really fun story. Here's the setting. There's this guy ruling Israel. His name's King Ahab. He has married a foreign wife. Her name is Jezebel. And there's this foreign god that seems really popular, and at least in the imagination, might be more powerful than Israel's god. And so a lot of the people start following this god named Baal. They're super into Baal. In fact, they're starting to forget all about Israel's god, who, by the way, has a name. Just so you know, in your Bible, it's often translated as Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, but all caps. And that is actually the translation of the name Yahweh, which uh, pious Jewish people don't even speak out because they're so concerned not to say the Lord's name in vain, and we respect that in them. But I want you guys to know that the name of the God of Israel, we know that name, and it's been revealed to us. And I want you to know that because Lord can feel really generic to us, right? But Yahweh, that's like super particular. It's like a tr- the, God, it's the name of a tribal God. And, and the claim of the Bible is that Yahweh is actually the God. And that's actually the big problem going on in the text. You see, Israel is God's people. Once they forget the name of Yahweh, once they forget about him, actually the knowledge of Yahweh could vanish from the face of the earth. And so there's a lot at stake right here in this text. And so God has these really crazy people that we call the prophets. And this crazy one's name is Elijah. 
And Elijah shows up on the scene, just kind of walks in to wherever Ahab is, and he says, hey, guess what? Yahweh is God in Israel, and just so you know that, and just so you know that I am his prophet, it's not gonna rain again until I say so. And then he drops the mic, and he walks out. That's pretty confrontational, right? It's pretty right in there. And it turns out that it doesn't rain. And God provides for Elijah. He sends him down to this wadi, so this little creek out in the desert, and uh, sends him uh, ravens, bring him food to eat, so he gets three square meals a day, and he's doing really good. It's like early Uber, right? Ravens bring you food. It's really cool. And um, he's there until the wadi dries up, and God sends him a little further away. And this time, it's almost as crazy as ravens. He's going to send him to a widow who has a son, and she's probably the poorest widow in the whole land, and she's about to eat, literally, she just has enough flour to make one more meal, and then she's ready to die. And that's what she tells Elijah, I'm not going to give you any food to eat, because we're actually about to make this last meal, and we're just going to lay down and die. And Elijah says, oh, that's cool, you're kind of poor, so I'm going to go to someone else, right? No, he doesn't say that. He says, no, actually, don't be afraid. Just trust me, trust in God. You go ahead and make me a meal, you feed me, and then you're going to be okay. Now, that's super wild, right? I mean, that's counterintuitive to me. I wouldn't think about that, right? We would think maybe God's going to send Elijah to some really nice subdivision in Buckhead where they just have extra food, right? And they're going to take care of him. It turns out God can use anybody to provide for God's work. It turns out it doesn't matter how much money you have, God can use what you have to do his kingdom work. That's pretty fascinating, isn't it? It's encouraging to me, because I might not feel like I have a lot of gifts. I might not feel like I have a lot to offer God. And God says, you know what, that's okay. We're gonna take what you've got, and we're gonna multiply it, and we're gonna do the work. And so the widow actually keeps going back to the jar and the drawer never empties. Super cool. Always provided for. Until finally her son actually just drops down dead one day. Crisis of faith again. And Elijah prays, and God brings him back to life. Elijah is a powerful man of faith. And after this episode, Elijah shows back up in town. He goes to see Ahab. And I think it's kind of like a mixed kind of feeling, right? Because Ahab kind of doesn't like the guy, but Ahab also kind of needs him to turn the rain back on, right? So it's like, okay, Elijah, like, what do we need to do? Like, I'm going to listen to you because we really need it to rain. And so Elijah's got, I got an idea. Let's do this. Let's have a little competition. We're going to take 450 of your prophets of Baal, and let's just throw in an extra, you know, 400 prophets of Asherah. We're going to throw those guys in there too. And you guys are going to build an altar, and then I'm going to build my altar over here. And then we're going to pray. We're going to like put the sacrifice on the altar. We're going to do everything. And then we're going to pray. We're not going to light it on fire. We're just going to pray that our gods bring fire down. If your God brings fire down, then we know that your God is the God in Israel. But if my God brings fire down, then we know that mine's mine. And they take him up on the offer. They're like, okay, we're good with this. Let's do this. And so they're working really hard to get fire to come down, and they're doing all kinds of stuff. They're cutting themselves, trying to get attention, and it just doesn't work. And so Elijah 
goes over to his altar. He's had some folks pour water on it just to kind of, you know, just to raise the bars if you needed to. And then he prays. He prays that God would send fire down onto the sacrifice. And it turns out that God does send fire down to the sacrifice and consumes everything. And his prayer was that the fire would come down so that they would know that Yahweh is God in Israel and that they would know that he is turning their hearts back to him. See, that's the whole purpose of the ministry of Elijah. And that's why when Jesus comes on the scene, folks were looking for Elijah, and he tells them, hey, that was actually John the Baptist. Like, John the Baptist already came. And his purpose was, like a crazy man out in the wilderness, yelling some hard truths to folks, he came to turn the hearts of the people back to God in preparation for the Messiah. And so we can understand Elijah's ministry. That's what he does. So the fire comes down, consumes the sacrifice, Yahweh shows himself to be God, and all the crowd is chanting together, Yahweh indeed is God. And then Elijah says, okay, let's take all those false prophets over there, and let's, you know, execute them, and we're going to clean up the land, and we're going to focus our hearts back on the one true God. And so that happens. And then after that happens, Elijah prays, and he prays that it would rain And it rains again. It's a great story, guys. And then what happens next? Well, now that Yahweh has made it undeniable that he is the true God, Ahab and Jezebel, they recognize the truth. And they turn from their misguided ways, and they start going to church every Sunday, and they admit to Elijah, hey, you were right all the time, right? And then they memorize the Nicene Creed. And then they start giving a tenth of all their income to the church because they just love the Lord. Right? That's exactly what happens. Only that isn't at all what happens in the story. And that is the reason how we got to that question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Because Elijah, like so many of us, assumed that if only these people could witness a bona fide miracle, they would turn away from their misguided ways and put their faith in Yahweh. He just knew that it was over. Like, okay, we fire from heaven, it's settled, right? Like, it's gonna be totally settled, we're good. And a lot of us think about it this way, we think about Jesus. We're like, Jesus, I'm praying for my friend over here and my relative over there, and could you just show up? And I just know, Jesus, that if you would just like, you know, heal them in, in some special way, I just know that, you know, everything's gonna change and they're going to turn to you, right? It's like, then we just forget that we can actually go back and read the Gospels, see Jesus doing miracles all the time, and people's hearts are just still hardened, right? Jesus is healing blind people. He's casting out evil. He's doing all kinds of amazing things, and yet he still faces amazing opposition. Jezebel doesn't say, Yahweh indeed is God. She says, I will indeed kill Elijah. Yahweh's prophet, just like Elijah killed my prophets. This is how powerful people in a fallen world think. It turns out that sin was actually never about rationality or science in the first place. What are you doing here, Elijah? 
I ran because I was scared and I feel afraid. I am exhausted because I have worked so hard for you and I have worked so hard for nothing. And so I feel despair. I thought for sure that fire from heaven would be the silver bullet. But now I'm facing just as much opposition as ever. I would guess for some of you this morning, Elijah is telling your story, isn't he? Maybe God something, did something big in your life. Maybe he answered a prayer in a powerful way. Maybe even looking back to when you first put your, your faith in him and you notice that something big inside of you changed. And you were certain that after that, everything in life was going to be good and all of your family was, was gonna get on board with your faith and your friends were gonna say, hey, this Jesus thing you're doing is just so great. Tell me more about it. I wanna go to church with you and find out more about what's happening. That's how some of us hoped. Only instead we are now encountering opposition and for some of us, maybe this opposition has caused us to doubt the fire on the altar. Friends, this morning, I just want to remind you that neither you nor Elijah should be surprised by opposition. Jesus actually says, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. And by saying that, he actually wasn't calling us at all to violence. What he was saying is that those that are going to follow after me are going to experience opposition in the same way. And as the gospel goes out and is proclaimed, folks are not going to be happy about it, just as they were not happy when I brought the good news. He says to his disciples, the world hated me, and they're going to hate you as well. First Peter 5 says it this way, discipline yourselves, keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. First John 5 says it this way, we know that we are God's children and that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. It turns out the evil one doesn't give up ground uh, happily and easily. And as we follow Jesus in his mission, the mission of Elijah to turn the hearts of God's people back to him, we will encounter opposition from everyone who stands to lose power when Christ is king and Yahweh is God over all. God has to ask Elijah the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Because Elijah failed to ask the question, God, what are you doing here? God, what are you doing here? What are you up to in the world, in the midst of tragedy and uncertainty and fear and violence? Where are you at work? God, what are you doing in my neighborhood in my city, at my work, and in my family. 
when Elijah runs, he runs way for south to what the text calls Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai. And if you don't know, Mount Sinai is all the way in the south of Judah. It's as far as you can go away and still be connected to the thing. And it turns out that God actually wanted him to go north to Damascus to anoint a new king. And so Elijah was crying and complaining to God about how he is the only one left and the only one that's faithful and how this thing isn't working. And God never addresses addresses his complaints straight on. He only says to him, okay, I want you to go anoint Haziel king over Aram. And so Aram is where Damascus is and to anoint Jehu as king over Israel, and to anoint Elisha as the next prophet that's gonna follow after you. And I'm actually gonna use all of these guys to destroy the enemies of my people. Elijah somehow forgot that God was already up to something. God already had a plan of rising up two new kings and a prophet, and God was never absent from the battle. God was always working in it and around it. Somehow, Elijah forgot the good news. He forgot that salvation is ultimately God's project and that it never depended on him in the first place. Elijah forgot to ask the question, God, what are you doing here? Friends, this morning, I wanna remind you that God is always at work around you and God is always at work in you and he's always at work through you. God is always at work around you. He's always at work in you and he's always at work through you. And so we have to keep coming back to the question, God, what are you doing What are you doing here? And then once we've learned to ask that question, God, what are you doing here? Then we become ready to ask the next question. God, what are we doing here? As we become more and more clear about what God's kingdom looks like when it comes to a place like Atlanta, what a community of love and healing and justice and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit looks like, then the question, what are we doing here? It becomes easier and easier to discern. Of course, by me, by we, I mean us. I mean us here in this room, our church, 